maybe students aren't showing up because what you're teaching is worthwhile. Not that they don't know it. <laughs> Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. Hello, hello, hello again. Cassie, I have a question for you. Hit me with it. Is your obsession with Diet Coke a problem? I'm worried about you. Every time I see you, there's one in your hand. Your eye gets a little twitchy when you don't have one. I'm concerned. I mean, we all have to have our vices. um, And mine is Diet Coke. Like, I am actually addicted to it. I don't know if it's problematic. Um, If I don't have one, then I feel a little off, you know, but... It is what it is. So it's the most mini form of addiction where it's just like questionably unhealthy. It's it's definitely one of those things where I'm like, I know this is not good for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. But I try to justify it to myself because I used to drink a full bottle every day <laughs> and I've weaned myself <laughs> down to like drinking the mini cans of Diet Coke. So every day I allow myself to have one mini can of Diet Coke. I'm sorry, that response, I want to give it an F. I won't justify giving it an F. And, you know, my grading is arbitrary and capricious, but I think that's kind of relevant to today's topic. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> You're a failure, which is kind of also, a, to label them an F people F students, are you basically saying they're failures of students? I'm just like, that's what I mean. Yeah. Okay, so today's topic, this is going to be our third episode, episode 03 on ungrading. And you and I are very both passionate about this topic, but I kind of want to take the lead on this. First, I kind of want to do some assessments on my part. So this is going to be very pop quizzy on you. But okay. Cassie, can you define to me what is ungrading? You and I have mentioned it a couple of times in episode one or two. So we were like, we should probably tackle this topic on really yeah, early. Yeah, it should probably get its own episode. I think of ungrading, my definition of it is kind of as an act of rebellion against the system of traditional education. I'm just going to insert anarchy music right now, just like as a, just like <laughs> an explosion behind me. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Um... <gasps> Would you not agree, though? I mean, to me, it's like, an approach to teaching where you try to put the emphasis on students' intrinsic motivation rather than relying on the extrinsic motivation of grades, right? And you structure your class accordingly. So let me push back on who cares, right? Like if grades aren't extrinsic motivation, we're giving them grades, they're showing up to class, they're hearing our content, so they're learning, right? Like who cares if it's extrinsic or intrinsic, what's that matter? Mm, I'd be more convinced if I actually thought they were learning. I don't think that you can say by getting an A in a class that a student has learned anything. Gaps. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to answer a bunch of clips here. (gasps) Okay, then. So an A doesn't mean you learn anything. Then what does an A mean? What does an A mean? It's, can I cuss on this? (laughs) 
I mean, I pretty much cussed in every episode, Cassie. It's uh, it's right. She okay, said I'm, the hey word. <laughs> I was gonna say it's. I'm gonna censor arbitrary. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. One thing I would agree with Luz is a lot of people would argue that grades are supposed to be a marker of learning. So A means you learn something a lot. You are far superior. And I think it's kind of really weird. For any historians out there, please correct the record or I'm just bullshitting all of y'all. But this is how I see it. At least when I think of assessment, I tend to think of early 1900s, particularly around World War I, right? Where for once we started introducing the alpha army test and the beta army test, essentially where you had literate soldiers and illiterate soldiers. And you had, I believe it was Yerkes, Yerkes, Y-E-R-T. K-E-S, Yurts, perhaps? Yeah. And a group of psychologists basically developed these cognitive ability, like one of the first intelligence-type tests. And it was to basically, you had more richer, wider folk who were literate get this alpha test who were promoted to like superior leadership positions, while you had people who took this beta test, which is arbitrary and capricious. I don't know why that's my favorite thing, but like it was just very, it was, do you know the missing part of a violin? Which, if you're already illiterate, you probably have low SES. And if you have low SES, you're probably not going to see too many violins or know what's missing. And those people were always sent to the trenches to be war fodder. And a lot of the evaluations you may recognize as the outcomes are A, B, C, D, E. Schools, to my knowledge, and again, this is where I want you to correct Mr. Rogers, but schools picked up this system because of the military, because of evaluations. And there's a really weird eugenicsy component to these intelligence tests originally, because an A would suggest, and I think the appropriate description was far superior intellect um, versus like mental retardation. Intellect was like E, obviously I think we switched E to F for some reason. There's this real eugenicsy bill that if you're taking the beta test, you're getting these lower scores and you are an inferior human being, the inferior intelligence, which is just kind of like gross language. Yeah. But this type of assessment was picked up by schools, right? Schools started being treated more like factory workers, right? Where learning outcomes are like teachers are just building a little bit of sociology, a little bit of history, a little bit of math. We have citizen and moving them along this conveyor belt. Um, And that's kind of what learning became, even up to as recently as Bush's era, right? where it was like no child left behind, mm-hmm. where schools were explicitly said, like, you need to treat this like a business. And you get money, you get funding if you pass standardized tests. And suddenly you now have teaching to the test as an issue. And teachers who want to give a more well-rounded, more liberal arts education in high school can't because now they have to teach to a test. That tends to be biased and disadvantageous to people of color and minorities. So, like, you have this whole historical context all the way from the army to now, why we even have letter grades. But people will say, well, letter grades are informative. They provide feedback. They let the students know how they're doing. Also, just competition, right? I want to know who's my best student and who's my worst student. And an A student is superior to my C student. And then you start recognizing, oh, what I put into my grade is just very random, even from semester to semester. One class that make attendance worth 10%, another class that make attendance worth 20%. And then the question is, should attendance even be counted towards the concept of academic achievement? Maybe students aren't showing up because what they're teaching is worthwhile. 
Not that they don't know it. <laughs> We're trying to simplify it without learning to A, B, C, D to get people to go over to a GPA so that students then compete over a GPA where the system is so broken that even our own institution, people can get above a 4.0. Hmm. Which conceptually, what does that, if you're saying this is a system that maps out 4.0, but we have a lot of 4.30 students, there's something wrong. Grades are not discriminating people, right? Grades are not telling you, GPA is not telling you who is better or worse. Yeah, that blows my mind. Right? And I don't think this is something that's unique to UA. I think a lot of schools are facing this. On one hand, you can imagine schools. We want our students to get jobs, and we assume that employers care about GPA. Right. So we know that other schools are inflating their grades. So we can either give an honest, true, difficult assessment, but challenge students to make them grow and learn, and they might get a C, but they've learned something because they've challenged themselves. Right. But if all your competitors are giving their students A pluses, then it's kind of like, Am I screwing over my students by trying to be honest with them? Like, that's an issue. Yeah. This all makes me think that just higher education, like, there's such an issue with running school as if it is a business, right? And I know we've had conversations before about how capitalism is to blame for, you know, our ineffective grading system, right? So, like, students think I have to go, I have to go to college, I have to get a degree so that I can get a job. And so suddenly it doesn't really mean anything in terms of like how much, you know, right. People just are like, I have to get a degree. And so suddenly we have all of these students who are in school who maybe don't even want to be in school, but the easiest way, especially when you have a whole lot of students to, to evaluate them is to use some sort of like grading system with like, A's and B's and so on. And I would argue that grades just aren't helpful. They're actively harmful. Mm. I would argue that, because I talked a little bit about competition in the school context, but even within a classroom. So you can imagine people who are taking organic chemistry, which let's talk about that. I want to put aside. If the norm is that 20% or 15% is the average for your test, and you're saying most students are failure tests, but I'm going to normally curve that so now that's average. One, that's an issue with how you're either developing the test or how you're teaching. Like that should be a red flag, but that seems to be a norm in like bio and camp classes. And students just accept it. They're like, well, yeah, I got 15%, but so did everyone else. So that's a. That's yeah, that does. You just, know, just because it's a norm doesn't mean it's okay. <laughs> But that goes into my second point. When I talk to those students who are taking those types of classes, they're like, I'm not competing with myself to like learn it or get the material. My only competition is to make sure everyone else does worse than me. Mm. And I've heard stories where people go into like group meetings and group chats for their classes and deliberately give bad study information, wrong mm. information to lower everyone else's score. Like that's a very toxic, that's an academic integrity type issue. Yeah. Right. But imagine the only reason that behavior exists is because it's incentivized. I don't need to learn stuff. I just need to perform better on a test better than everyone else. And if I can't perform better, I'm going to make everyone else's performance worse. Yeah. I mean, that's the, like that's the core issue, right? That like, 
you're not incentivized to truly learn things. You're incentivized to get a certain grade. Definitely. And I would say, I like, uh, I believe it's Amy Fast quote. I think she tweeted this. Uh, let's see if I can read it off so I don't want to misquote her. And hopefully I originally typed this up correctly or transcribed correctly. Uh, she writes that the saddest and most ironic practice in schools is how hard we try to measure how students are doing and how rarely we ever ask them. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think my reaction is just the lack of concern for students, I guess, that she's conveying, right? Like we care about how they do in courses, but I think a really critical part of teaching is also having compassion for your students and humanizing them as well. I would say, do you think many people will just like sit down and talk with their students or like, I, I, we've talked about authentic teaching and being transparent before, but like just mm-hmm. this idea of, Let's even imagine someone who's like, I'm not going to talk about my personal life and tell my stories. Even those people, do you think that they still at the very least check in? For instance, like, how are you doing? Are you learning, right? So you don't even have to be personal about it. You can still just be like, you know, ask. Do we do right. that? I mean, I do those things in my classes, right? Like if I notice someone hasn't turned in an assignment, I'm the professor. It's like, hey, you didn't turn this in. Hope you're okay. Like, but I can really see if you're teaching multiple classes, especially if they're multiple large sections, how that could easily lead you to be coming like overwhelmed or even like burnt out taking the time to like reach out to every single student who like seems to not be coming to class anymore or who isn't consistently turning in assignments, right? When you have your own work to do, which again is like an issue with how higher education is set up, right? We have a lot of obstacles to do authentic teaching. I would say one of those obstacles being class size, class size inflation. Wow. It used to be, based on my understanding, I never went to experience this, but back in the day, like a seminar class might consist of anywhere from 10 to 15 people. Now I think our smallest seminar classes are like 28 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just like supposed to be the personal class. Our yeah. larger classes go into the hundreds. And so like you're saying, do you connect with everyone, right? Is it fair to expect your teaching assistant to show up and notice who's missing and who's not? That's hard. And I don't want to like brush aside that teaching large classrooms provides unique challenges to like getting this personable approach. I still think it can be done though. And I think there are techniques that maybe we can talk about a little bit later what can be. So I wanted to add up to the competition piece, this idea of schools aren't just competing with one another, students are competing with one another. And so again, I don't want to speak to your experiences, but I do feel like this is commonplace. So it's just personal perceptions. Anytime you suggest doing group work for group discussions in small groups, I feel like that's such a foreign concept to students and they're so averse to it. And a lot of them don't really want to have conversations with another, don't trust really each other to hold a conversation. Yeah, this is something I think we could probably talk about in an episode on flipped classes as well. But a lot of the resistance that I have faced when I have flipped classrooms is because it's a lot of forced social interaction and it's group work, at least the way I design it, it's group work every single day. And it is something that students, I find, push back on or at least initially don't seem to be enjoying very much because I think the way that they have been trained to approach school 
is as if, you know, your classmates, your peers are your adversaries, right? Like you are competing with one another. And so like having these like shared goals, especially within the classroom is something that they don't have much experience doing. And I like that word of there's that initial resistance. I think that, that's a good phrasing of something <laughs> yeah. I've been liking to say more recently. I feel like I'm just going to become an old man of just a bunch of like these phrases. It's probably one of my favorites that I learned way back when. Of you can imagine your general area, a square around you, the place that you're standing, and that's kind of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. right? It's you can move around your space. It might be big, it might be small, but you have generally your own comfort zone. And learning really only takes place just outside of that, right? Where you feel a little bit uncomfortable, not too uncomfortable, a little bit uncomfortable. And you're challenging yourself to expand that space within. I feel like flip classrooms, and like you said, we'll talk about some So are a good way of doing that where it's like very low stakes. It might be initially uncomfortable at first, mm-hmm. but I'm sure based on the stories you've told me, like students learn to love it and be like, oh, this is really great, right? Like they've expanded what they're comfortable right. with and they become more open-minded to it. Yeah. One more thing I want to say about the act of harming grades. It's, I don't know what's wrong for education since I don't get this night actually at college level, but even elementary, middle, high school. Students are terrified of being wrong. Mm. Students want to be like, if I don't know the exact 100% answer. And let's be fair, some teachers are kind of like, you either have to say my answer or they'll just like kind of shut you down completely. I've had professors like that. My own personal experience, they're horrible. Um, but like I said, I think it was expensive until like high school, middle school, school, where even when you want to challenge your students, because they're so conditioned to be like, go the easy route, avoid challenge, do what's going to get you those easy points. You can have activities that might take some time, right? That are going to take some effort that are a bit challenging, but are at least more creative. Mm-hmm. Or you could give someone an easy project of like write this and there are your points. Well, students will actively avoid the more challenging creative tasks for something more mind-numbing, straightforward, and simple because at least they know those are like easier points. And if the end goal is just your grade, why are you going to, if you're going to get A anyways, I, I can understand this logic. Why would I do something harder or more ambiguous or more gray? When I could do this very black and white, straightforward activity, not learn much, but it's the same amount of points. Like this heavy focus on points and grades, I feel like makes people not want to challenge themselves at all or even go into their or step outside of their comfort zone. I I totally agree. And I think in addition to that, students are afraid to be wrong or to challenge themselves because they have been taught that their grades are indicative of their self-worth, right? So like, why would you potentially like set yourself up to get a bad grade that would make, you know, your peers or your instructor or anybody think that you are an incompetent individual, right? Like why take that risk of like being perceived as that way if you don't have to. Which I think is a benefit of ungrading because you make everything so low stakes where like, even I think our advisor for a class that she teaches, like one of her projects is just like, have a podcast episode. We want you to hold a podcast episode and record it, right? Right. And she's always like, what am I going to talk about? And it's like, anything relevant to the past, you get to choose. Yeah. And like, it's almost liberating when they feel that way because it's like, oh, there's no huge final exam. It's 200 multiple choice questions. It's just... And she also provides alternatives as well, but like that being one of the creative options, I think is very awesome. 
Yeah. No, I think it is like very liberating when you have those sorts of things. And I know I'm doing ungrading in um, my statistics class this semester and I'm having my students design a rubric, right? Well, they've already completed the assignment. So they design a rubric and then they are going to use that rubric at the end of the semester to assign their own grade. But I had a few students in my class who like as part of their rubric in order to get an A in the class or whatever to assign themselves an A, like part of that, them saying things like, I want to actively work on detaching my self-worth from my academic performance in classes. And I'm like, hell yeah. Like, I like that you want to, to work towards that. Right. And so like, I've had conversations with a couple of my students already about how you know, how much grades stress them out and about how they are excited to proceed this semester with this class because they don't have that hanging over their head constantly. Ooh, I want to I want to highlight something. It's work done by Ruth Butler, but this idea of separating yourself from others. Uh-huh. Um, I think the title is Enhancing and Undermining Intrinsic Motivation. And along with what the study that she did on like types of feedback, uh, I think she also assessed like what students qualitatively said about themselves especially how they relate to topics. Mm-hmm. But, and you nailed your student, nailed the, the head, or what? Head of the pen? Pin <laughs> of the, the head? Nail, hit the nail on the head. <laughs> hit the pin on the nail. Huzzah, <laughs> that's got to be a new phrase. But like the most frequent things, and let's be I hear this all the time. I hate math because I suck at it. Mm. I'm not, a, I say this sometimes, I'm not a writer. I can't write, I don't want to write. And you'll be at, why it's like why well, I always got like seasoned writing or like D pluses in math. So that means I just must suck at that. So math some of it. And like these are very interesting topics when taught well, like even writing, because that gets to creative writing, poetry, not just scientific writing, or math and the beauty of math in nature. Like there's so many interesting things. But you'll have people who are trained since they're young to be like, oh, I was always a D or C student in that subject. So that means I can never learn from that subject. It's like almost something that's like, I, like you said, it's almost like has established their self-worth, self-worth or more specifically their self-efficacy. It's a classic self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of cases too, right? So they have gotten this feedback through the form of grades their entire lives. And then they go to new classes related to that subject and they think that they're not going to do well. Right. So like on the very first day of class, when I teach statistics, for example, I have my students fill out like a, an anxiety towards stats measure. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, this is like correlated to usually like your performance in statistics courses. Right. So if you are like less anxious about it and think you're good at it, then you usually do better in the class. And a lot of them are like, oh, crap, like I scored like really low on this. Like I don't believe in myself very much. And so like I, as part of the activity, I have them rip it up and I'm like, don't create a self-fulfilling prophecy for yourself on the very first day of class. Like if you come into it thinking you're, you suck at math or you're not going to do well or enjoy it or learn anything, then you might end up. I think I'm the melodramatic one. (laughs) Oh, you do some melodramatic activities in the classroom. I am such a melodramatic teacher, but I, I love it. (laughs) And I think my students do too. For anyone who's still listening, thank you for still listening. We appreciate you. Like <laughs> you're still there. Yeah, thank you. But a lot of what I'm pulling from is, and I mentioned this book before, but I'll really try to post it. The full book is called Ungrading, Why Rating Students Undermine Learning and What to Do Instead. 
which is a book edited by Dr. Susan Bloom about different instructors from different disciplines trying to implement on grading solutions, issues, problems that they have. So a lot of that is kind of what's informed my own view on this. Um, but specifically, there was one chapter that really talked about something that I personally found frustrating before I did in grading. And it's this idea of grade grubbing. And so Cassie, just out of curiosity, have you ever heard of grade grubbing? I think you might know what it is once I explain it though, but no. not. So grade grubbing is this idea that people come up on syllabus day, day after or like the class afterwards, they show up and they're like, so how many points is this? Uh, how many points do I need to get an A? Do I need to do this assignment if I get an A? Hey, can you boost up my points just by 0.01 so I can get my A? Hey, 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 what's the lowest I have to do? What's the worst I can do on this test but still get my A? Like, have you ever had that thought process? And I'm gonna be able, I've had that thought process of like, what's the most minimum amount of work I can do while still securing the grade that I want? Oh yeah, I've had that thought before. That's really sad if you think about it, because they're like, how can I disengage to the best of my ability from this class while still getting the carrot at the end of the tunnel? Like mm-hmm. that's a horrible like to me that really impacts I've heard a lot of instructors being frustrated about this. They're like, these students, all they care about is their grade. Why are they asking me what's the least amount of work they can do? Because that's what you're rewarding them for. You're basically telling them like, yeah, get that A. Here's what you need to do to get that A. I'm like, and there's a lack of just care for the students, right? So like on one hand, we're like, we want them to care about their learning. But so many people are like, but also don't, let's not talk about the points, even though I'm working in a point system. And I'm like, that's contradictory a little bit. That's a little Yeah, little... you're sending mixed messages. You said that a little too happily. <laughs> you're sending mixed messages. Now that was just creepy. I didn't hit the pit on the nail. <laughs> the pit on the nail. Another phrase I will coin. Oh. Oh god. These um so I kind of want to move on to problems to solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So we basically have been spilling the beans, throwing the shade at grades and grading. And there's still, let's be perfectly honest, there's still a lot of issues with grades we didn't bring up. But for the sake of time, we can always complain and ramble on later. I think that what I like about on grading is that it tries to promote these concepts. And I feel like one of these concepts is the idea of you first have to trust your students. Yes. Right? You have to trust your students that if you don't make attendance required, that they'll still show up. You have to trust that if you're putting something worthwhile in learning and you're creating a worthwhile curriculum, that students will show. I feel like that's the first thing um, and that they'll actually do. Like if you're like, hey, I want you to watch these videos at home so we can discuss it next class. Or, hey, here's a very interesting article. I think you all should really read it. Because you're not making it mandatory, there has to be an element of trust that they'll still do it. Yes. Will there be students who don't? Yes. Of course. I mean, there are students who don't do the work (laughs) when you have a regular grading system. And that's the alternative. And honestly, that's not, there's something even worse from students even not doing the work or doing the assigned reach to the system. I would say the current grading system actually encourages and gets people to practice academic dishonest behaviors. Yes. Cheating. Our current system actually encourages cheating, right? If you remove grades from the equation or you let students choose their own grades, right, or you have students trade, uh, create their own rubrics to establish their own grades, there's no longer a motivation to yeah. cheat because they're evaluating themselves. 
Yeah. And you're like, well, can't they game the system and lie and say they deserve a grade if they don't? Yes. But at the end of the day, at least you're not actively having them practice because those same students might be the ones who actively cheat and start building habits of like, it's okay to plagiarize. It's okay to pick other people's tests, right? And to me, and I don't know how you feel, I don't want to speak for you, but there's something almost worse about that of students saying like, oh, I deserve a grade, even though I don't, versus someone who's actively engaging in cheating behavior and misrepresenting themselves, like, or like it's a more severe integrity issue. I agree. Yeah. Like, I think the act of like engaging in actual academic misconduct, right? Like cheating on an exam or like hiring someone to write your papers for you or something like that. There's something about that that is worse than a student being like, "Mm, yeah, I deserve an A. And again, feel free to disagree with us. Send it to an email. I'll have Cassie read it to me as I actively ignore it. (laughs) Ignore the hostile feedback. Um, yeah. But there's also a second thing that I like that's been promoted from grading. And it's this idea that we can't hide as an instructor, as a teacher, you can't hide behind your grades and say, I grade because it's the fair thing to do. I grade because grades are objective. They're not. You can't say grades are fair. And so that's why I do grades and hide behind that facade. Mm-hmm. Grades are never fair. Grades are always arbitrary. And just because they didn't take your class, but they t- perhaps took a separate instructor's class doing the same thing, guess what? Those two classes aren't included. Instead of lying and saying that there's an objective standard, why don't we meet students where they're at? Acknowledge that they each have different starting places. And guess what? They're probably going to have different finishing places as well. And being very honest and open and having these conversations with students about like what is personal growth for you? That's why one reason I really like ungrading too is because I think it helps to foster equity and inclusion in the classroom, right? Because not every student starts out a class in the same position as everyone else, right? Like some students, for example, come to college and they went to a really shitty public high school or like they had like familial circumstances where like they couldn't study after school. They had to watch their younger siblings, you know, or things like that. And so ungrading gives everybody the opportunity to to reflect on, again, like you said, like their personal growth, what they have set as their goals in that class and like what they want to achieve. Right. So it kind of like levels the playing field in that sense anyway. So like academia is like, oh, we're a meritocracy. But in many ways, I think it's just privilege in disguise. The students who come more prepared because they've had the privilege of like that kind of background in their education, they start off in a better position. And I would say even to go one step further. So if I was going to take the DEI issue to like maybe uh, a concrete example as well, although, you know, and I loved your examples of like, maybe, you know, you're someone who's in the States who just comes from a poor background and maybe you got that scholarship that put you in that cool undergrad institution, Mm -hmm. but you don't have the same background as everyone else. I would go one step farther. And what about our foreign exchange students? What Mm. about our international students? Yeah. What about the students who are from Korea, who are from China, who are from anywhere else, right? Even, you know, from Europe, from Ireland, from whatnot. Foreign exchange students where English is not their primary language. And now you have writing assignments. And you're saying, hey, grammar's 20% of your grade. So if you mess up two or more times, you now have grades dashed. How is that even reflected with their learning? Like, how is that personalized at all? And these are conversations I've had here with our own instructors, because the class I'm teaching right now is also a W writing class. 
And not all my students are APA Mastered 7 Edition writers. Some of them, unfortunately, have rarely, if ever, been exposed to APA writing, right? We try to give them some exposure, but we teach it so poorly. And I'm not saying UA specifically, but like instructors teach APA so poorly a lot of the times that when you have a formal writing class, you're like, all right, APA only, and I'm not going to teach it because you should have already learned it on your own, question mark. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to punish my students for that, right? I need to be flexible. I have a question for you. So like one of the like most common criticisms or like hesitancies about ungrading that people have like expressed to me, how do you deal with the fact that it might not be fair, quote unquote, to students because some are going to set standards for themselves that are really high and then other students are just going to set like really low or silly standards for themselves in terms of grading, right? So like what if a student is like, I have to attend one class in order to get an A or something like that? How do you deal with that? I can only speak to my experience. Um, and that experience is I've almost had the exact opposite problem of not people setting too low standard, people setting too high a standard. Um, so I've never had someone say, if I show up to one class, I get A, because I think it comes to trust the students. Like if you believe that students are going to do that, that's kind of cynical, right? And maybe you've been, let me also acknowledge, some teachers have been burned by students. Mm-hmm. They like were very optimistic. They were invested. They cared for students and students outright lied, manipulated, and cheated on them. Right. That's damaging to trust, right? Like, I want to be very upfront. I don't want to minimize anyone's danger of like, I tried to be good, but students screwed me over. But in my case, I've had more people, especially the first time I did this until I made it clear the second, third, and so on times I did ungrading. I've had more people say, I need to have 100% attendance. And that's part of the only way I can get an A. And if I don't have 100% attendance, I will not give myself an A. And as an instructor, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it's almost seems like a verse. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Calm yeah. down there. Like, sick days, miss yeah. a few. And then that usually leads to conversations of like, is attendance in of itself really what you're focusing on? Or is the learning aspect of it? Yeah. Yes, you may miss more or less classes, but is that really what you want to grade yourself on? Right. And so that actually leads to kind of, I want to transition to like solutions or like what you can do if I'm grading. Um, and I want to tell you something that I'm trying this semester that I'm absolutely in love with. So audience, first time hearing it, but Cassie's kind of in hearing me go um, rave about this, but this idea of student conferences, and again, completely borrowing it from that ungrading book by Bloom. But I love the idea because in middle school, high school, elementary school, either your parents or yourself would meet with your teachers and have a talk, right? And if you maybe were a bad student, you're like, oh, I don't want my teacher to talk to my parents, but you know, oh, well, I have made, and again, I, this, I would, I want to acknowledge if this were a larger classroom, it would be harder. But for my classroom of 30 right now, 15 minutes at the very least to meet with every single student. Let me stay upfront that these were not mandatory meetings. I did not force them to go. 29 out of 30 students signed up for a voluntary meeting with me as a get to know you, but also let's have a talk to set their own personal goals. Let's talk and just see how the first weeks of the semester go. Yeah. And I was just going to say, I love it. Attendance, not mandatory. Guess what? Every student that showed up on syllabus day should still showing up now. I have not seen a single student drop. All seats are filled. And some of you are like, what are you doing? What's this? I tell them up front, like, I'm only a human, but I trust that you all care about your education above and beyond a grade. 
You and I, we can sit down in these conferences and set personal goals. So I can either meet with you again at the middle or end of the semester and check in with you to say like, hey, how do you feel like you're doing? You talked about students being too harsh on themselves. And to me, that is where I see is more common. So I always had a stipulation, I think you do as well, of this, I reserve the right to veto any grade that propose, but only if I believe that grade is too low. Right. Yep. I've seen more students give themselves, I've had a student try to give themselves a D and C's and B's. And those were the students who were like the most talkative, the most interested, would visit office hours. And they're like, I just felt like I could have put in more effort. I'm not sure. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I tell them, like, I have, I can only veto it upwards. And if they really feel that they deserve a lower grade, which actually has opened, it's only happened ever to me once, right, where they gave themselves a B. I'm like, are you sure you don't think you deserve an, at least an A minus? Like, it feels like you deserve that. And they're like, no, I know myself well. I deserve a B. And I'm like, okay, trust students. Talk with students. If to the fullest extent that you can, maybe in smaller classrooms, get to know your students, if in larger classrooms, you have teaching assistants, maybe it could be the case that teaching assistants, their time isn't spent 10 hours a week grading, but even something as simple as having these office hours and getting to know students kind of as a proxy for you. And it kind of just kind of keeping a pulse on your class of like, how is everyone doing, right? There are different ways to use our current resources. And I feel like better ways to use our current resources and instructors. Definitely. And I think one reason I like your that you're doing these student conferences so much is we've talked quite a bit already about the importance of humanizing instructors, but I think it's also important that our students feel humanized as well, right? So they're not just some number, some name on a roster to you, but that they are an actual person that you care about and that you want to learn. Definitely. And like I said, these confidence are one just to kind of get to know them, humanize them and myself, right? But it also gives you an opportunity for your teaching, right? Like you don't have to create a hard set cemented syllabus. You can have weeks where it's like student's choice. And by having conversations with these students, I now know that I have usually more than I normally do a bunch of forensic psychology, like future forensic psychologists. They're really interested in that. And I'm like, how can I bring the law into my classroom? How can I bring those topics? I wouldn't have known that unless I sat down with them and talked with them. And these reoccurring patterns of activities they like and don't like, if I'm talking too fast or too slow, if there's too much text on my slides or not, that's the type of feedback I can get early on, but also reoccurring every time I meet with them in the semester, right? I would say maybe two times, at least at the beginning and the end. I'm attempting three since it's my first time. Hopefully it'll be worthwhile. But those just... The idea of me trying, I think they see my effort and I think they're responding in kind. Yes. I, I turn the tables, how the tables turn, how the turn tables <laughs> and the pin on the head. <laughs> Can you give me an example of how like an activity or even like just some action that you've done as an instructor that you feel like falls under the ungrading category. So like if someone was listening to this and be like, what does Cassie do? Or what's one thing she does as part of ungrading? <laughs> you scared. look scared. <laughs> you should be scared. <laughs> Why are you so amazing, Cassie? Damn it. My question for you is this. I, uh, if you can imagine a listener who's never heard of ungrading, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, all right, that Jacob guy talked about maybe meeting your students and trusting your students more, but they're like, I want more. I want to hear more from Cassie. What type of stuff does Cassie do for ungrading? What's, how would you respond to that eager listener? 
Um, sure. So I guess I can kind of like walk you through what I'm doing this semester in my elementary stats class. Um, so this is the first time I've ever done ungrading in this particular course. And I mentioned the rubrics before, but essentially what I have the students do on the very first day of class is like I introduce the concept of ungrading, right? This idea that they are going to be evaluating themselves and not getting that sort of feedback or that kind of evaluation from me. I have them like think about their own like learning goals and then they go home and I give them a couple of days to construct this, this rubric, right? So like what kind of goals do you have for yourself? And like, based on those goals that you have for yourself, what do you need to do to, you know, get an A or a B and so on in the class? And I leave that assignment pretty open, um, which I think a lot of students are kind of scared of because they're not used to that much autonomy. But I'm essentially like, your rubric is going to look like what what you want it to look like, right? I'm not going to, again, it's about trust. Like, I'm not going to go in and be like, this is a stupid component of this rubric. Like, you can't have that. Um, and then the way I'm approaching the rest of the class is like we still have assignments in the class, but they're all optional. Right. So I have like homework assignments that they can complete if they want or like open book quizzes and exams that they can like complete if they want. But like with the understanding that like the points that they get on those assignments, like don't go into like their final grade. Right. So, for example, we just had like a first optional quiz in the class. Right. So like everybody, not everybody took it, but a good uh, portion of the class took the quiz. Right. So they got feedback on the quiz. Right. So it wasn't just like this was your score out of like 10 points or whatever. It was like, no, you, you missed this question right and this is what I think you were going for but like mm, no like you kind of missed the mark there and then we reviewed it together in class as well right so it's more about giving them qualitative feedback than like focusing than them focusing on like how many points they're earning right that are going to go towards their final grade right so there's still plenty of opportunities that they'll have over the semester to like practice statistics but hopefully like they're not going to be so anxious about their performance on those assignments that it affects how well they are doing on, on them. Right. Cause I do feel like a lot of students, especially psychology majors have so much anxiety about statistics. Right. So I hope that by recognizing that they're not going to need to earn a certain number of points, they feel more confident in attempting those assignments. So one thing I want to add to the point of possibly things you can do with student conferences is something I've kind of been doing before, but like having many low stakes group activities or reflection questions in the middle of your lectures, having them write those types of reflections down after they do the activity. And what I'm asking students to do is to keep it because at the end of the semester, what I think, hopefully I think is going to turn out to a successful idea is I want them to turn in a reflection portfolio right? So like one of their writing assignments is this idea of, I want them to put all the reflections, their initial thoughts and their opinions of what they thought the topic was going to be, things they learned, things that they felt that worked well, didn't work well. Instead of having them be like, what did I do 10 weeks ago? They actually have a record, their own record on these reflections. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping to have like these final end of semester, end of semester student conferences, not to only to check in with their personal goals, but I want them to talk to me about their reflections, yeah. And so like we're already building that. Yeah. So that 
I have um, a larger class than yours. Mine's 86 students. Um, And so I'm not having like individual conference meetings with my students, but um, around midterm, I have like a self-reflection assignment that I want them to turn in um, and that I want to give them feedback on. I might not be able to meet with them, but I can, you know, at least like respond in an email. Um, And then at the very end of the semester, they have like a final reflection that I want them to do. And just like yours, it sounds like it's a lot of questions like, what did you change your mind about? Like, what did you learn? Like, what what could be improved upon? Did you make any, you know, discoveries about yourself? Like that sort of thing. And I guess I want to end end this episode on the idea of like skeptics. So specifically, I think you already kind of addressed one point, but I can imagine a skeptical person's like, I have a large classroom. I can't implement all this stuff. But I think you made the point that through alterations and creativity, like going greatless can be done in any class essentially, right? Like it may be some tweaks, it may be smaller group discussions, it may be utilizing your TAs, Mm -hmm. but this overall idea of trusting your students, not fixating on a grade, having them reflect and establish their own learning goals, I do think can be done in the classroom. And that's like what I would say. And so my question to you is, imagine you have the skeptic. They're like, yeah, they're cranky and grades, grades are grades, grades are fair, grades are all this. And you kind of like gave in your spiel but there might be someone still who's listened to us and they're still a bit skeptical. What would you tell that person where they're like, I'm not sure. Or like, they're kind of like, I don't know. I think that I would probably ask them to reflect on their own experiences as a student. Right. So before I implemented ungrading, I spent a lot of time like thinking about how I felt, especially as an undergraduate student in courses and being so stressed about grades. And then I thought about like the kinds of classes and the way that classes were structured that ended up being the ones that I still remember content from or like still am in touch with those, you know, those professors and what set them apart was usually that I felt like those instructors trusted me and had compassion towards me and like where I was in my own life. And I think ungrading is really compassion and pedagogy. Yeah. So I, (laughs) I guess that is my, that's my selling point. I don't know if obviously if ungrading is like the most perfect approach to teaching or if it is an approach to teaching that really is for everybody. But I do think that it is worth trying. And I think that the experience can be eye-opening, not just for you, but for your students as well. So I really like your activity of reflect on your own like teachers and what made them stand out. And you're right, like to me, the most personal teachers, the ones that were most human, the ones that have to show that they cared, are some of my favorite professors. And the only thing I would say to a skeptic, it's you don't have to jump two feet into the pool, right? You can dip a toe. You can add elements of ungrading or try bits and pieces, right? You don't have to drink the pool completely. You can take a sip, right? You can say, all right, I want to do this slowly, I've been teaching, but maybe one semester I'll add a little bit of this, see how it goes. Next semester I'll tweak it and add some more. Or you might find, like as I said, maybe ungrading isn't for you, but at least you gave it a shot, right? But still, though, this idea of you can add small pieces, it's not an all or nothing principle, right? And I think that's also a misconception. It's I have to, 
you know, it's so much to do. I don't know where to start. And since I don't know how to do everything or do all the things, I'm going to do none of it. I'm like, it's okay. Start, starts. <laughs> well, it's just like, I think how students are often like scared or like a little put off by something that's different. I mean, it's a very human thing, right? Like something different is kind of scary to us. So like, I, totally understand like being kind of terrified of like trying to implement this and like wondering if it's going to work or if it's going to going to backfire but again like being willing to like take the chance I think can be extremely beneficial and I I also want to comment that like like I said like I think ungrading provides you an opportunity to really humanize and be compassionate towards your students and I think a lot of teachers forget after you get jaded by the system, maybe just how influential teachers are in people's lives, right? So oftentimes, like what you were doing as a teacher isn't just trying to, you know, pass on knowledge to the students in your class, but like in many ways, like you become a role model, right? And you, you change lives, right? Maybe this is just me being like (laughs) full of myself, but but I don't know. And I think like, yeah, teachers change lives. And and especially I think as instructors of psychology or like behavioral sciences, we are in such a unique place where we get to talk about such interesting human things, right? And we get to share perspectives with our students about all sorts of relatable topics, right? If it's like things like religion or politics or, you know, like gender identity, all of these really interesting things, right? And so I think the classroom should be about creating a space where you can have that kind of dialogue. And the pressure isn't on, you know, like you talked about, like competing with the other people in your class, but rather like gaining new perspectives and being inspired and having role models, right? Who are your teachers or maybe even your classmates that you can look up to, right? Like those sorts of human experiences are what we should primarily be concerned with in the classroom, right? It shouldn't be about a distribution, right? Creating a normal distribution of A's and B's and C's and D's and F's, right? That's, it's bullshit, right? Like we should be worried about creating human beings who, who are knowledgeable, but also like know how to like interact with other people. I don't know. I'm going on a rant now. (laughs) And on that powerful note, We hope to see you next time. Hopefully we haven't scared you away too much from the Kool-Aid, right? Drink the poison. Join us in this cult. (laughs) You know, join us. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Yeah, hit us up. Hit us up on social media. Don't be afraid to continue the conversation. Correct the youth. (laughs) (laughs) And on that piece, I think that's a good question. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hello, hello again. We just want to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.